Howdy, howdy, people. Thanks so much for joining me. Once again, it's your host, Alfred Faber. This episode was with some super cool people, uh, director Samuel Van Grinsven and soundie Stu Melvey. They both just graduated from the master's program at the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. Samuel's grad project was a super low-budget feature called Sequin in a Blue Room, on which Stu was re-recording Mixer. Samuel can explain the film a lot better than I can uh, later on, but it essentially follows a gay teenage boy as he navigates the world of online hookup culture. I got to see it a couple of days ago, and it was amazing. A brutally confronting, really beautifully shot, uh, and a really authentic, original, new queer story. If that's his debut feature, then I'm really excited to see what comes from him next. Uh, It'll be premiering at Sydney Film Festival on the 14th and 15th of June, where it's already sold out for both nights in just the last week since I did this interview. Anyway, enough from me. Let's hear from our guests. Sam Van Grinsven and Stu Melvey, the director and re-recording mixer of Sequin in a Blue Room. Thank you so much for joining me. Howdy. Um, so Sam, can you tell me a bit about your kind of history in filmmaking, how you got to Sequin? Yeah, um, I actually, uh, never planned on being a filmmaker, um, wasn't my main interest growing up at all. I went to acting school first after high school, um, then I started working in, uh, editorial, like fashion, kind of that sort of things, um, the visual side of that. Uh, and then, um, I directed a play. Um, and I started using a lot of like audio visual in it and, uh, the co-writer of Sequin, Jory Annist, she said, uh, this is really good film school in Sydney where I was about to move to. You should apply. So I applied and I got in and, um, five years later, here I am. Mm. (laughs) So people just kind of saw your work in theater and thought you should try out film. Yeah. I was using a lot of, um, I was really interested in, uh, like, uh, the lighting side of theatre, um, using screens, using uh, projection, um, and uh, doing a lot of work where we had cameras on stage. Mm. Um, so it sort of just slowly morphed that way, and I think it was just it just took that person close enough to me who I trusted to say, "There's a film school you should go and study it because I think you'd like that more than theatre." Mm. And um, yeah, it just took that push. How do you think the work in theatre kind of influenced you? It definitely helps working with actors. Um, it, it just like uh, going to acting school, um, but the rehearsal process in theatre is so much longer than it is in film. It's really, really drawn out. It's really, really intimate. Um, and uh, in film, it's it's quite the opposite. It's very, very quick. Um, it's very reactive, which I actually prefer now. Uh, but theatre gave me uh, just that vocabulary. I think to work with actors, it I, I got to experience what they experience when they go to acting school, uh, and just have to have that shared vocabulary. And Stu, can you tell me a bit about your kind of history in the world of sound? Sure, sure. Um, I grew up as a musician. Um, I was never classically trained, but I learned electronic production and like guitar from when I was six years old or something onwards. Um, I never thought of going into sound. Or music as a career and I actually did visual design as my undergrad and I slowly got swept up in the idea of actually doing music and sound for a living 
Um, I crossed over from music into sound just due to the amount of knowledge and passion I had for production and, uh, and sound design. And that led me to having a whole bunch of guys who uh, were really into film and they kept saying, stop doing music um, so much. And so I was getting quite disillusioned with the music industry and the scene and um, becoming a professional musician just seemed very, uh, a hard life, mm. not, um, not the illustrated one that they sort of show you. So, um, yeah, I got really swept up in doing things that are creative with other people. It was much more collaborative, collaborative. And I think outside of music, I got to meet a whole bunch of people who had a lot of different ideas than me and coming together in bigger works and relying on people with vague, like, so vastly different skill sets, mm. um, was something that really excited me. Mm. So jumped into film. Um, and I cover like the whole spectrum of the audio music world. So I do music production and mixing and producing in that I do location, sound, sound design, editing and mixing. Sam, the film is kind of inspired by your experiences in kind of queer hookup culture, was it? Yeah. Mm. So uh, the film centers around a 16-year-old and his uh, coming of age in a time of uh, the digital age uh, where sexual discovery is on demand and um, anything you want to experience or try uh, or learn about is a click away. Uh, which was certainly my experience growing up. And I'm in an age group being 25 when I made the film um, of uh, the first generation of queer people who grew up with that and grew up in a time that was sort of, I guess, in flux between um, forming your sexual identity as an act of transgression uh, whilst we're a part of a generation that's the most liberal in history. Uh, So it was an interesting time to grow up and... Uh, the film came about, uh, yes, from some personal experiences, but it's certainly not autobiographical, but I would say it's more autobiographical of uh, my generation and uh, the shared experiences of myself, uh, my queer friends, and also my co-writer, Jory Annist, who's a straight woman. Something I loved about the film is what a contemporary story it is and what a kind of fresh story I hadn't seen that authentic a representation of modern queer culture in film before. It was really cool to see. But it was actually also really terrifying a lot of the time. Were you aiming for it to be kind of a scary film? I mean, I think it was definitely there in the script, but um, it, it came out a lot more in post-production. Um, mm. And on set, I could feel just the way that it was being performed, the way that... Uh, the words were coming out of the actors, the way that um, we were framing it, like all of our natural instincts really going toward that. But really early on in the script writing process and in the research development for it, we talked about this idea that for queer people forming their sexual identity, it's so linked to not just transgression, but you're having all these experiences in secret or um, with like an anonymous culture to it, which is such a big part of Grindr and all these hookup apps, that you do... Uh, just out of necessity, put yourself in these situations that are so close to danger or the feeling of danger. So there's a lot of queer theory about this and written about this, that uh, young queer people form their sexual identity 
uh, around the same sort of emotions and feelings of fear um, and of danger. So a lot of our sexual identity comes from that and it's linked to that. So I think just in a way, it wouldn't make sense for it to not have those elements in the film. And yes, it plays on it. It's a, it's a, a, th- a psychological thriller in a lot of ways. So obviously it's heightened, but I think it comes from a place of truth as well. Mm. So you said uh, just then that you kind of found it in post-production. Did you guys kind of craft a lot of your ideas regarding the soundtrack in post-production? Is that how you kind of discovered a lot of the film? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's always a big experimentation process. Um, I had a few ideas that I wanted to push at the beginning um, that I think are just generally... It's always good to go in with some ideas of what you're going to try and accomplish. Um, and even if they get watered down, at least they're still in there. Like all of the elements of film usually come together and are really sing because they're subtle. So even if it's an ambitious idea, um, it's good to start that early and then get it, you know, um, watered down over time. Um, I think the biggest one was if you've noticed in the film, every single shot is sequin, the whole film. There's no other character and everything is through his point of view. Mm. So I think probably one of the biggest things we wrestled with um, just in terms of where volume should sit and what the audience should be noticing was how warped the world should be going from his eyes and how naturalistic we should also portray the world as well because you push it too far in one direction and it can actually throw you a little bit off because of um, just perspectives and distance and relationships of acoustics. And yeah, and the other one is just how far can we go into his mind? Um, And so the audience actually understands and appreciates what he's thinking and going through. Mm. So you were really concentrating on kind of mixing it from his point of view, from his perspective? Definitely. Mm. And there are times when he's in a very heightened state yeah. Either sexually aroused or scared or intimidated. And there are times when he's in complete assertive control. Mm. And so they have their own separate palettes, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So some of the most kind of stylistically interesting moments were in the blue room um, early on. What were you kind of wanting people to feel when he went in there? Because it was just kind of constant music and really full on and in your face he i wanted i wanted people to feel how he felt at that moment which is limitless Mm. he's walking into this space that has no clear geography has no clear end is sort of this maze made of um this kind of see-through plastic uh surrounded by all these different uh types of uh queer men uh of all different ages and he's in that particular moment when he first walks through those curtains into the blue room, it's just limitless. The options are endless. Mm. So I wanted people to feel that. And, um, and of course, the, he's, uh, he's overwhelmed as well. So I think we play with that with the, both the volume of the music and the, uh, the style of the music track itself. Is, um, it's, it's probably the most overwhelming section of the film, I would say. So um, it was kind of... It was pretty micro budget, wasn't it? The film, and you had quite a tight production schedule. So, what was the production like on that? 
on the blue room yeah oh the blue room <laughs> yeah uh, by far the hardest part of the shoot by yeah. far um, it was we shot the blue room uh, I mean it's most, it's called sequin of blue room so it's, <laughs> it's um, if we didn't get that right we didn't really have a film um, but it's also it's it's the turning point it's the it's uh, the experience that he has in the blue room with um, one particular individual is the experience that sets off the entire film mm. uh, and sequence journey and sequence desires so I, it, it was a lot of pressure going into it and I think everyone on the team knew that I think also just from a cinematography standpoint it is incredibly challenging um, with the budget we had just lighting it you know we shot for real at night in a warehouse um, huge huge set and a lot, a lot of extras a lot of main cast and um, steady cam so every single element had to be lit Mm. Um, with all of the lights hidden, yeah. um, with all the crew hidden, and it was it was incredibly difficult. But it was uh, we shot over three nights, um, five p.m. to five a.m. Three nights back to back. Wow. Uh, yeah, very. It was definitely it was right in the middle of the shoot, and it was definitely the most challenging part. Mm. And um, Stu, were you involved in the film from the beginning, from the script phase, or? Did you um, come on later? I I definitely came on later. Mm. I signed. To, I agreed to do the mix well mm. before they started shooting. Mm. Um, so I was definitely involved. But yeah, I was involved with my other master's projects and kind of got little hints and updates. Um, but generally, I was afar. Yeah, I'd say. Um, until until Sam was ready to provide me with, with the project. Um, I, think it's, I think it worked out pretty well because uh, I think... The project itself went on so many twists and turns from what Sam told me um, and me seeing it with uh, with my own eyes at a particular moment um, in the film's sort of progress um, kind of meant that I had a undisclosed and natural instinctive um, take on it which would lead me to make it very thriller and probably add a lot more bass than is <laughs> you know, what what I might have done if I had seen the whole film from the beginning. Yeah. Um yeah, as it probably got more and more dark and suspenseful. Did you yeah. guys uh get a lot of time on the mix? Was post production in general pretty um The score quiet? pretty generous, yeah. 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 yeah, it was it was good. Um making a feature isn't easy mm. and a lot of the elements that um I think everyone was trying to race to get done at the end. Um, kept slipping, so we got a few more weeks on it than um, the schedule originally required, um, which was great for everyone. Really, it just meant we got to make the film better, and I got to spend more time polishing the film. Mm. So it was a great experience for for me as well. So it's obviously kind of pretty daunting making a feature for the first time. Um, would you have any kind of tips for people who are trying to do it? Um, yeah, I mean, it's incredibly daunting. Uh, I think I learned, I am continuing to learn something every day from this process and it's completely changed the way that I think about directing, um, that I think about uh, the entire filmmaking process from start to finish. It is such a beast and, um, you know, it's been full-time seven days a week for two and a half years to get this film made and now have it ready for audiences uh but i think the biggest lesson for me has really been about team 
Um, I have n I'm very fortunate to have an absolutely incredible producer who, uh, this is her second feature and she's 23. Uh, and she's been a real sort of guiding light for all of us, I think. And um, she, uh, it's having that really open communication and support from everyone as well. Like even my relationship working with Stu throughout the film has been uh, intimate and um, knowing that everyone in the film is young and that it, for a lot of us, for the majority of us, actually, it was our first feature. So really having that space for allowing people to be learning on the job um, and knowing that there are limitations that come with that, obviously for time, because uh, everything does take a little bit longer. But uh, I think that's also probably the most exciting part about it is that everyone's so eager because it is their first feature. Um, but they were willing to try all types of different things. And I think for me, that was always the the greatest part and the most supportive part of all of this is that I've had a team that were just willing to follow me and to trust me and to uh, try all the different ideas that ended up in the film. Mm. When it was so kind of low budget, did you find yourself able to experiment and kind of take a while or did you have to rush it sometimes? Um, sometimes you had to rush it. I mean, sometimes there were, you know, it was the first AD on set. It was like, you've got 20 minutes to shoot this scene. Mm. Um, you can have a quarter of the shots that you originally wanted. But I think it, for micro-budget feature filmmaking, you have to do a lot of that experimenting prior to being on set, mm. um, just in terms of the production side of it. Uh, and that was certainly the case. We really, we spent a long time on the script. Um, we really, really got it thoroughly um, read by industry that we trusted, um, by uh, collaborator collaborators that we trusted. Uh, and a lot of the experimenting came from that, from the writing process, um, having a lot of visual ideas. That's the benefit of being a co-writer when you're also the director. Uh, and um, even, you know, the cinematography team doing all those tests before we get to the script, being sure what kind of frame sizes that we want, um, what kind of lighting we wanted. We had the gaffer involved really, really early on so that when we got to set, it was really, really clear how the film was going to be lit so that we weren't constantly experimenting on set. But yeah, I would, that would definitely be one of my tips is uh, get as much of the experimenting done prior and go into the actual production, really set on what your film's going to look like and sound like. You said um, that you liked how in theatre you get a lot more rehearsal time mm -hmm. with actors. Did you try and push for that on this? Did you manage to get as much rehearsal time as you would have wanted? No, but... Um this film was different. There's not a lot of dialogue in the film. Mm. So um, a lot of the rehearsal process was way more focused on the script and the character development, which was new and exciting. But it's, uh, I think a big lesson from this has been you just have to put the time in for casting. We'd spent six months casting this film. We did it wow. whilst writing because wow. there was a lot of characters, um, a lot of lead characters or supporting lead characters in the film. Uh, and it's so true that if you cast the right people, the amount of time that you need on set to rehearse, uh, it, it shrinks because you're authentically casting. And we were, we were able, because we were casting whilst writing, we were able to feed some of the actors' energies into the script and into the characters and let that form that as well. And uh, yeah, it, it made that process a lot easier. Mm. And um, the lead sequence, 
uh, he was a fairly new actor, was he? That's his very first film. Wow. He's never done a short either. So really? <laughs> huge when undertaking for him. him. Uh, yeah, Sequin took the longest to find. And yeah. Connor Leach, who plays him, is uh, uh, was nothing how I imagined Sequin would be, to be quite honest. But um, uh, he his agent put him for... He's from Melbourne. Um, and she his agent was quite drawn to the project. So she pushed for him quite... Um, quite a lot so uh she said will you please see a self-tape from him and i didn't think he was right for it but i thought why not and um he sent in a monologue that we had sent to him to do and um yeah got about two lines into his self-tape i've never finished it to this day <laughs> really? and um, i picked up really? the phone said yep, yep 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 and we flew him up to sydney and he was just he in my head of what of how sequin would be uh, I think I was focusing on very particular parts of the character's personality, and that's sort of what I was looking for in an actor. Yeah. Whereas Connor, in his self tape, really inhabited this um, uh, this really intellectual side of sequence. Someone who sort of uh, is constantly um, investigating the people around him and observing the people around him, and uh, scheming, it, scheming, and manipulative, really. So. Um, I mean, it's an incredibly selfish protagonist and Connor in his audition tape really, really hit that straight away. Mm. Yeah. Stu, something that Sam just mentioned is how little dialogue there is in the film. Um, how did you approach that when mixing the soundtrack? Um, uh, you put in 53 minutes of music. <laughs> <laughs> is it 53 minutes? I think that's what you said. Wow. Um, there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of sound design that crosses over into music. Yeah. There's a couple of tracks that you'd think are just music tracks that just came from the edit. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, fill the space with lots of sounds, mm. lots of atmospheres. Um, but there's so much going on all the time, especially with texting and just visual representation and... Um, even just like a really wide dynamic range, there's just a lot to pay attention to. So I don't think the film, it's not a film that you need to be languishing on really long shots that are, I guess, peaceful or things that allow you to meditate in a space. This is not that experience. It's, um, it's very claustrophobic, um, the film, which I actually got very used to the film and, um, my friend who saw it at the screening just that was his first thing he said was that it was a very claustrophobic experience yeah um one of the things that i did um a lot with space is the start mixed really conservatively had everything on the screen um i think because i had done a lot of tests in my prior film that i sort of wasn't happy with and i just wanted to keep um just a, a pretty like you know i try and test it and I know it works sort of approach. And slowly we started bringing things off the screen and getting a lot more experimental with it. But one thing I started doing a lot was um, bringing in the atmospheres, especially in scenes when he's in a confined space or he's under attack. And that if you basically, if you widen a stereo Atmos track or something, it creates the image of space as natural as possible. But if you start to bring it in, you'll hear the bleed from the other speakers playing so it confines the space uh, and it creates a very yeah. claustrophobic feel. Wow. Um, so that's sort of what I mimicked in the sound that the picture was telling me. Um, I think I went a bit too overboard with it and started pulling it back and I found a happy medium. Um, 
but yeah, that was one thing I did. Um, another huge one was just playing with dynamic range. So um, there are some super loud scenes in that film, some really quiet ones. Um, even in scenes where um, there's some pretty physical activity, sexual activity happening, um, I would really go nuts and compress a lot of even the sync tracks and the dialogue and the breathing and make it really crunchy and quite severe and then bring it back when it enters a more natural state um almost as if um the world is kind of compressed on his um i don't know more more of a psychological um effect i did want i wanted to ask about the composer was his name's brent, Will- brent williams brent yeah. williams yeah. i i loved um his work on that. Yeah. I've read that he's worked a bit in installation mm-hmm. and stuff. Yeah. What was working with him like? Incredible. Mm-hmm. Amazing. He did uh, the short I did uh, just before Sequin. He did that mm-hmm. as well. Um, so I'd had that benefit of working with him before, which was great. But uh, he, it took a lot, as just said, there's a lot of music in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it did, it definitely took a long time. It took a long time to get certain songs right. Um, but there were, he did a few sketches, uh, really, really early on, uh, toward, we were probably on the shooting draft of the script. So we're just about to go into production and he did a bunch of sketches, um, of just how he imagined it based on, you know, all the visuals elements I've showed him of what we were trying to do, who we'd cast and the script and just all the conversations we'd had. And those sketches pretty much, uh, very, very close to the style of music that ends up in the film, particularly the Blue Room. Uh, we edited with one of those sketches um, in the picture cut, uh, and uh, his music was the only music we ever used to edit the Blue Room. So uh, it was just great to have that and to know that when we were screening it for audience tests during picture cut, that the music world that we were showing them was very similar to what it was actually going to be like. Um, because it's it's always a big risk in picture edit. You get very attached to the um, the temp score, mm. but mm. having him feeding it in the whole way through was amazing. And so, what's next for Sequin? It's playing at Sydney Film Festival, but um, are you able to talk about any future plans that you have for it, or where it might go next? Yeah, um, we have uh, just about two weeks ago locked in our international premiere. Um, I can't say what it is just yet, Ooh, <laughs> uh, but uh, it gets announced during Sydney Film Festival, so um, which would be very cool. It's a festival that I have loved for years, and it, uh, it's definitely one of the ones that we really hoped Sequin would play at. So uh, that's very exciting. Um, and uh, there's a few other festivals that we're still up for. Um, it'll probably spend the next year and a half on festival tour. Um, and then we've looked at a few different options for um, video on demand. Um, so uh, streaming and uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. Mm. And do you have any other projects that are in the works or are you kind of focusing on promoting Sequin the next couple of years? Uh, I mean, Sequin's still definitely a full-time job, uh, <laughs> but um, it, we, the same co-writer, Jory, and I are, have just started um developing uh, a feature script for an, uh, a, our second feature narrative. Um, so we just started working on that uh, and we are hoping to shoot it in New Zealand. 
that's exciting. Yeah, really cool. exciting. Yeah, I'm cool. from New Zealand, so that's, yeah. <laughs> that's why. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, uh, smaller than Sequin in a lot of ways. It's um, uh, definitely a smaller cast um, and uh, definitely has a lot more dialogue. Cool. Well, thanks so much for joining me, guys. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you. If you'd like to see Sequin in a Blue Room, it's screening for Sydney Film Festival on the 14th and 15th of June. Now, those screenings are already sold out, unfortunately, but follow their social media for any other news on potential avenues to watch it and upcoming festivals. Thanks so much to Jean-David Legoulon for the music and to Lily Ford for taking stills. Have a good one, guys. <laughs>